You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Why did you and Stephen Garson write this book? Uh, we were interested in... If we, if we see the Dawkins reforms as one of the top four major reforms of the Commonwealth Government in terms of higher education policy, mm. then as an institution we should know how um, those affected the university mm. and particularly what the legacies have been you mm. know, that follow on. So what we were interested was really to see the effects, impact and so forth of those reforms on the university and we, disco- you know, we, dis- we discovered that Sydney was probably, as one of the older universities, a university that really um, was in some ways transformed mm. by those reforms. Isn't it fair to say that all universities were transformed in some way? They were, but uh, if you say look at existing universities, um, Sydney took on six new, took on six CAE institutions. Mm. Um, their full-time equivalent, or their student load, increased by fifty-nine percent, um, and their full-time, effective full-time teaching load, <laughs> the academic load, um, increased by thirty-three uh, percent. So if we look at those nationally, those mm. figures are very different. Um, most universities, um, you know, Melbourne University, for example, only took on four CAE institutions, and that was seen as a lot. Mm. Sydney takes on six. Um, Melbourne's um, full-time equivalent academic staff, you know, they always have these strange uh, names for effectively full-time staff, they only took on 4%, Sydney took on 33%, nationally the figure was um, 7% Mm. and the national figure for um, the new student load for universities was 49% and Sydney's was was 59%. So we can just see in those national figures that it was um, a much bigger you know, the changes were bigger than mm. the national story would suggest. A major theme in your book was um, the conflict between tradition and, and modernisation, which won out in the end, in your opinion. I think it's still a contested mm. battle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, certainly. I mean, our, our book is, of course, arguing that tradition won mm. out um, by 1996. Um, there are still... Sydney, perhaps unlike some other universities, still live with the legacies in some ways of that transformation. But I think the particular issue, you know, why perhaps Sydney, um, why, why the battle between tradition and modernisation in Sydney was more protracted than, say, in Melbourne, mm. um, I think was that we, unlike Melbourne, um, Melbourne's Vice-Chancellor David Pennington was appointed just before the Dawkins announced his initial Green Paper, Um, So he was appointed and he had his agenda of change Mm. and then these um, occur and of course, you know, he doesn't want to join the national system, uh, the unified system, but um, he is essentially forced to, but his approach is to make those um, reforms, the Dawkins reforms, work for his agenda. Mm. And that is absolutely noted in the figures that follow very soon after. Sydney had two vice-chancellors, so one at the end of his career, mm. uh, John Manning Ward, who essentially scooped up, you know, um, he was going after 
CAEs, like it was out of fashion in some way. So he was, um, despite concerns within the institution, he ended up signing with six. He then retired in early January uh, 1990, and his replacement, the new Vice-Chancellor, Don McNichol, um, was outside Sydney. He did, was not a Sydney man. He had not come up through the ranks mm. of Sydney. And while, you know, he had an agenda of modernisation, um, he also had to... It was as though he'd come to the party and mm. all the glasses had been packed up, you know, all the deals had been done. So he had to somehow make the institution work while also think, how does the university actually work in the, 20, in the late 20th century? Mm. So those, you know, Sydney had in some ways more complications than Melbourne did. Mm. And it showed in the figure, you know, the figures immediately after um, the institutions amalgamate. Would you say a major part of that was because he was an outsider when he came appointed as Vice-Chancellor? Yeah, well, in, in, in the book we do uh, make something of the fact that mm. we don't call him an outsider, uh, but we do refer to, you know, the culture of uni the University of Sydney at that stage. So it had an enormous academic board, which was a leftover of the professorial board. Mm. And it even, despite being reformed, it even grew. So um, McNichol, you know, had to come into a university where there was this great mammoth <laughs> of, a, of an academic board that he had to deal with um, and not, you know, hadn't dealt with it before. So that potentially um, was one aspect, that he wasn't a known person. But he also, of course, had um, a chancellor who had been a professor of English mm. at this university, a formidable woman, Dame Leone Kramer. And if anything, you know, what we learnt was that the relationship between a chancellor and a vice-chancellor is incredibly important. Mm. And when a chancellor even though they may not agree with the Vice-Chancellor privately, mm. um, they could workshop that behind doors, but that support, that public support, mm. is incredibly important for a university to succeed. And McNichol did not have that support mm. from his Chancellor. Um, and, uh, you know, from then on for some years, there were fights on the Senate or conflict, mm. which... Um, we think stopped the university from really seriously considering the sorts of big changes mm. that um, it had mm. agreed to adopt. Yeah, it's, it's a so, messy public distraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the point relating mm. back to your question that whether or not McNichol had been a Sydney man, you could be a, you know, Gavin Brown wasn't a Sydney man, but he mm. had a good working relationship with his um, Chancellor. That, that that probably fundamentally was a big problem mm. for McNichol. And when you're talking about the Dawkins reform, you talk you, you mentioned the word legacy. Why why that word? Uh, because, well, it's, yeah, that's an interesting question too. Um, I'm going to go around it, around about. <laughs> Dawkins himself last year said, the reforms are out of date. Mm, now, what he was proposing, we can debate as mm. to whether... That his, I'm glad he's not the Minister for Education now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
the um, so he so he says you know they're out of date. Mm. What he in some ways when he said that you know what what we thought was well that actually is an admission that there is a policy black hole mm. as far as higher education is concerned in um, Canberra. Mm. So there are legacies because there's not been you know a really innovative visionary policy change since then. Mm. I can just um, end with a little story, uh, end on that point with a little story that last year an academic from um, a Japanese university came and visited me and he's doing his PhD in um, education in a Japanese university and he wanted to come and talk to me about Dawkins because that's what he's mm. doing his uh, thesis on. and. I didn't quite fall off my chair as to why is a Japanese academic doing a thesis on Dawkins, but I almost didn't had to ask him. And he pointed out that amongst, um, or certainly in Japan, amongst uh, academics of higher education, Australia is seen as this really interesting place where you can see how um, national government policy mm. on higher education actually works out, you know, works its charm or whatever on universities because of that public relationship mm. and um, he's looking at some of the earlier you know commonwealth policy reforms but you know it just shows that there's been nothing well it's almost um, tw 30 years mm. now and there's been nothing I, you know there's talk about deregulation and things like mm. that but that's about money yeah it's not about uh, the Dawkins reforms notwithstanding that there was a lot of concern and angst and some of it justified uh, nonetheless had some pretty good proposals in it which included equity and diversity mm. um, and you know it's that sort of thinking which has been lacking I mm. think in our Commonwealth mm. politicians regarding higher education. Before the Dawkins reform was there a long period of just uh, policy nothing happening? No. It, no. So uh, if we look at Commonwealth policy regarding higher education, we can really only date it properly from um, the Second World War. Mm. And it's a bevy of activity. Mm. So um, you know, some highlights are, um, well, the establishment of the, um, I've forgotten what it's called now, but anyway, in, during the war, uh, a Commonwealth body to look at how to fund research in universities. Mm. Um, but otherwise, it's the Murray Report in 1957, mm -hmm. which um, not only as a, as a consequence of that establishes new universities, but also rejuvenates universities, particularly Sydney, mm. um, which meant that dis new disciplines could flourish, like history and others. Um, so that's one major reform that the Commonwealth would assume money sort of an endowment almost of mm. universities so that they could get on and expand and do what mm. they had to do. The next one was the Martin Inquiry, which essentially uh, created the binary um, system of higher education, which is of course what Dawkins wanted to collapse down. Mm. So that was to say, right, we have the universities which will educate, do some training, but essentially uh, focus on you know, a number of the professions as well as liberal education and also be uh, centres of research. 
whereas on the other hand we'll have CAEs where the focus will be on training and you know training professions such as teachers, nurses, um, musicians um, and other health professionals that didn't come mm. into doctors. Uh, so that is the next statement. So that they, they both happen within the post-war period and into the 60s and new universities are still being established as a consequence of that. And then of course in the 70s there's um, Whitlam's uh, proposal that not only will the Commonwealth Government take over the funding of universities but also all students now won't have to pay. Mm. So um, that had a major impact in terms of increasing the number of women in traditionally male um, professions such as law, male disciplines. And then the next one is Dawkins in the 1980s. So, so you know, what I'm arguing is 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, there has been um, a major Commonwealth reform mm. um, vision. You know, mm. some of it's been a bit constraining, but it's always mm. constraint within a bigger vision. And what you know, nineties, noughties, mm. and the twenty tens. There's been nothing. What about the uncapping of places and uh, hex? Yeah, I mean, well, hex was nineteen eighties. Mm. Don't forget. Yeah. So um, that I mean, hex was part. In some ways, can be seen as part of the Dawkins reforms, mm. although he didn't. There wasn't in the Green Paper, but you know, he by expanding the system, um, they also needed to think how it could be. Funded. Yeah, <laughs> and um, you know, for whatever people think of Hex, it's um, it's still a fairer way than many other systems in the world. Mm. You know, have at, at actually funding domestic mm. education. So it comes out. I mean, it's been tinkered a lot mm. now, of, mm. of course. But you know, when it was established, it was established with the idea that essentially those people who ended up earning a lot of money would be the ones who'd pay back their education. Mm. And if you didn't, then you didn't have to. That's a pretty generous... Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, and the next stage is of this, essentially, it's a re of your research pro project via these yeah. books, is um, you're analysing the effects of the Dawkins reforms on Melbourne Uni, like we've mentioned, Griffith Uni and University of South Australia. So why these unis? Yeah, I, I need to preface this by saying that um, the research comes out of an Australian Research mm. Council grant, um, and we wanted to look at four case studies as well as a national study. Um, so we wanted to look at um, two older traditional universities. So we chose the two oldest mm. in the country, Sydney being the oldest, Melbourne in 1853 being mm. the second oldest. So that was the justification for those two. Um, Griffith was um, represented a university that was established in that uh, pre-Whitlam but post-Murray um, period. Mm. So um, and it, it, so it was established from memory in 1971, I think. Uh, you know, it was also established at a time that universities, in some ways, were being rethought uh, in terms of disciplines. Mm. You know, instead of having a very structured way of, uh, say, doing an arts degree, it was um, the the idea of humanities was emphasised instead of mm. arts. Um, so. Griffith provided an example of 
in some ways innovative approach to universities from its foundation mm -hmm. in 19, early 1970s. So how would um, some reforms that were occurring about 15 years later affect that sort mm. of innovation, mm. that, that very new idea of a university. Mm. University of South Australia, which is the other uh, case study, what was to examine um, what a post-Dawkins, what a Dawkins university looked like where it was an amalgamation of existing CAEs mm. without a um, university, mm. without an older university. Yeah. So, um, yes, so that's that. And then the national study, which will be coming, all, all those have actually been published now. Mm. Um, the national study will be coming out at the end of the year, authored by Stuart McIntyre. Mm -hmm. Right, um, that's all the questions I have. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, yeah, what, what I will say, I, I just want to, yeah, there is. Something that we forget about the Dawkins reforms is that they did emphasise equity and diversity. Mm. And in a lot of the established universities, uh, so ones like UNSW, Sydney, Melbourne, probably not sure about Adelaide, um, that question was never really addressed. You know, mm. the sorts of issues that were addressed was how are we going to operate as a university when we're being told by the government to do certain things? Mm. University of South Australia, however, established as a consequence of the reforms and and some other universities that were established you know by amalgamating CAEs addressed that issue so you know in the act I think it is the foundation act of University of South Australia it's it's um, encapsulating it's actually saying we're established mm. to promote the values of equity and diversity or words to that effect um, so we tend to forget that without the Dawkins, you know, a good thing that came of the Dawkins reforms was that we, um, in, there was an increased reach regionally, um, so outside the cities and country areas, to um, students. So that is one, the mm. university education was being brought to them as opposed mm. to the sort of complicated way of them coming to the city. It's done that quite effectively, and those universities are the reasons why, if we look at our national numbers of um, equity and diversity, why we're better mm. than we have been. Mm. If we took those universities out, it would be a pretty sorry story. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so uh, yes, I, I, I think we tend, you know, at the time there was a lot of emotion um, you know, the other day when we had a seminar, someone even said paranoia um, about what Dawkins was trying to do. Some of that was potentially justified, but, you know, let's look at the bigger picture, mm. that there was actually supposed to be, that the reforms were supposed to assist um, students, more students coming and getting a university education, and it did that. 